Between 1849 and 1856, the Reverend Dr. David Livingstone undertook a series of extraordinary journeys in southern Africa. He ended up crossing the continent from west to east. He wasn't the first to do it, but he was the first to map his journey accurately. Now, Livingstone was employed as a missionary, but he'd seen the grim human cost of trade in enslaved peoples in southern Central Africa and had set himself to establish some kind of legitimate and profitable commerce that could replace the capturing and selling of people. Well, like many other Africans and missionaries, Livingstone was also fleeing the white Boers who were advancing from the south and bringing guns and violence with them. His scheme for new trade routes, either west or east, was also meant to outflank the trade in big game that was spreading gun violence among the Africans. But Livingston had no money. His journeys were only made possible because he was adopted and funded by Sekeletu, the 17-year-old king of the Kololo, a people who had settled on the Barotse Plains, in an area that is now on the borders of Namibia, Botswana, Zimbabwe, Zambia and Angola. So the big question is, what was in it for Sekeletu? Hello, good to see you at the History Cafe. This is where we come to talk about historical stories everyone knows. We want to try out some new ideas. I'm Penelope Middlebow. And I'm John Roseback, and we're revisiting stories that have got stuck in our collective memory, but just don't look quite right to us. So get yourself a coffee, pull up a chair, and let's see what happens. Walima Kalusa, who is a historian at the University of Zambia, has studied the Kololo people in this period. He rightly points out that at least until recently, sometimes even now, Livingston is imagined as an extraordinary explorer because he travelled alone. Well, he had no financial backing except from his small missionary stipend, and at the start of his travels he had no other support except from a few big-game hunting friends. Uh, soon he left even them behind. Somehow, it was always assumed, Livingston succeeded in walking thousands of miles across the continent with just a few European beads and some rolls of cloth, which he used to buy food and the right to pass through African people's lands. But of course, as the historian Calusa points out, Livingston never travelled alone. His expeditions were only made possible because the Kololo king funded them and sent his men to travel with Livingston. It was the 17-year-old Sekeletu, king of the Kololo, who had put up most of the trade goods that enabled Livingston first to trek west to Luanda on the coast of Angola. And it was Sekeletu who then donated all of the goods Livingston used to go east to Kelimani on the Indian Ocean. Now, Livingston had first encountered the Kololo on one of his early journeys, when Sekeletu's father, Sebetwani, had been king. When Livingston arrived this time back at the Kololo capital, Linyanti, on the 23rd of May, 1853, the new young king, Sekeletu, had met him on the road and escorted him to the Kugotla, his town's central court. Nearly all the town's 7,000 people joined the procession. 7,000, that's very big. In England in the 18th century, hardly any towns were 7,000. Big place. Poems were recited in Livingston's honour and the women brought pots of beer, crying and ululating. 
In the weeks that followed, Sekaletu offered Livingston anything he wanted. Imagine that. Livingston asked the king to allow his kingdom to be converted to Christianity, and Sekaletu agreed. In September 1853, Sekuletu called a pizzo or national meeting with his indunas, subordinate chiefs. They listened as Livingston, speaking of course in the local language, set out his plan. The Kololo usually traded slaves for beads, guns, European clothes. In fact, most of the people who'd accompanied Livingston that day into Lenyanti turned out not to have been Kololo at all, but Lozi, Liengo, or Sapia, and from other neighbouring peoples. They, in fact, were the Kololo's slaves. Well, Livingston now proposed that instead of trading in slaves, the Kololo could sell beeswax or ivory or ostrich feathers. Well, they already had those, along with coffee, tobacco, cotton, or sugar, which he'd show them how to grow. There wouldn't be any more need for slaves or for the endless wars that were necessary to capture them. Livingston then explained that what he needed to do was to establish a route to carry this new trade to the coast. So he requested Sekuleto, the king, to fund his journeys to Luanda in the west on the Atlantic Ocean and then to Kelamani in the east on the Indian Ocean. It would be a, well, a bold partnership, quite unlike anything either missionaries or explorers or indeed Africans had ever attempted before. The subordinate chiefs of the Kalola people, the Indunas, were bitterly opposed to Livingston's proposal. No wonder they were making a handsome living from selling slaves. But the teenage king, Sekaletu, backed Livingston. So, in November 1853, he equipped him with a royal canoe, ivory to pay the various African peoples along the way, four oxen to carry their goods and then eventually to eat, and 27 young men including two of his best young Kololo chiefs who would act as guides. Two years later, Livingston and the 27 Kololo men returned from Luanda on the Angolan coast with coffee and other seeds to start Kololo plantations. But that would have to wait. The problem was this. Slaves had always been forced to walk to the coast. But you couldn't make an ostrich feather walk to the coast, or a coffee bean. Somehow, it would have to be carried in bulk. And in practice, that meant that Livingston would have to find a navigable river to carry them. Livingston's epic journey westwards had turned up no river that could take any significant trade. So, before it was worth anyone planting anything in the Kololo's lands, Livingston would have to try to find a river route going east the two Kololo chiefs who'd acted as guides on his journey westwards would come along again, this time with 114 Kololo men. One of them, Sekwebu, had already travelled extensively in that direction, east. This time, the king himself, Sekuletu, came along for the first part of the journey. This time, they picked up the enormous Zambezi River, and they followed it downstream as far as the spectacular Masio Atunya, which means smoke that thunders, a spectacular waterfall. Livingston was the first European to record his visit there, and he renamed it Victoria Falls. 100 metres of plummeting water across the entire kilometre of the Zambezi's width. Well, that would put an end to any trade boats navigating further inland. But Livingston calculated that they were already hundreds of miles inland. Just being able to bring a ship this far would be well worth the effort. Now he just had to hope that there was nothing else like these immense falls before the Zambezi reached the sea. 
As Livingston and the 114 men waved goodbye to their king, Livingston believed the African had backed him because he shared his vision of opening Central Africa to peaceful European commerce. Like any other British Victorian, Livingston imagined that the Africans had been delighted at the prospect of getting their hands on superior European manufacturers and that they would welcome an end to the endless cycles of violence that the slave trade provoked. But the question is, was this why Sekuletu and his Kololo people went to such enormous lengths to make Livingston's journeys possible? Or was it, as we saw last time in the historian Stephen Voltz's description of other encounters between Africans and European missionaries, quotes, unclear who might be using whom? Between 1853 and 1856, Sekuletu, the young king of the Kololo in central southern Africa's Barotsi Plains, threw precious men and resources into supporting David Livingstone's journeys, first to the west coast and then to the east. But the question is, why on earth would Sekuletu undertake so expensive and risky an experiment? Well, as the historian Walima Kalusa points out, Sekuletu left no records of his own. But it's not impossible at all, once you understand Kololo society, to work out what might very well have been in the young chief's mind. As the historian Kalusa points out, the Kololo state had been established by Sekuletu's father, Sebetwani. It was ruled by a caste of warlords, subordinate chiefs or indunas, who governed with their private armies. Now, young Kololo men were kept out of power until they'd proved themselves in battle. In fact, they were even banned from owning cows, which was critical, because it was the cattle a man owned that gave a man status, power and influence. When Sebetwani had died in 1851, Sekaletu had been just 16 and not proved himself in battle. So even he, the king, was banned from owning cows. In fact, his father's herds had passed to his cousin, Mpepe, the greatest of the Induna warlords, and Mpepe had promptly sold them off to slave traders in return for guns and cloth and other Western goods. Well, to make things more complicated, the late chief Sebetwani had actually bequeathed his kingdom to his daughter, Mama Kazani. Jolly good. And it was only when she had abdicated that her half-brother, Sekuletu, had come to the throne. Actually, it's an interesting story. Livingston describes how Mama Kazani's father had wanted his daughter to behave like a male chief and take lovers or husbands just as he did. But this just hadn't worked out in practice. The other women wouldn't put up with it. And when Mamakazani eventually chose a husband, he was teased and people called him her wife. Eventually, she and he probably couldn't stand it anymore and she abdicated, leaving the Kololo throne to her younger brother Sekuletu. Well, no surprise that many Kololo believed that Sekuletu had no right at all to be king and his cousin, Mpepe, was soon plotting, in fact with the help of a wealthy Portuguese merchant from Angola, to overthrow the boy and replace him. All of which meant that young, cattleless king Sekuletu was in a very perilous situation. He was so poor he couldn't even afford the labola, the bride price, to marry properly. And wives were almost as important as cattle as a mark of Kololo's status. No surprise then that much of Sekuletu's support came from the Mapato, the young men who were poor like himself. 
They shared his feeling of exclusion from power by the older, cattle-rich Undunas, who, as Livingston Riley noted, married, quotes, all the pretty young girls. So you can see that for Sekaleitu, Livingston's appearance or reappearance in the village was like a miraculous gift, a golden opportunity. Here was this mysterious outsider who bought Western luxuries, medicine and carried guns, but apparently had no ambition to impose foreign rule. He also had connections with other peaceable missionaries whom they'd met and heard about, and apparently shared the missionary's talent for gun and wagon medicine mending the western objects the Kololo bought but didn't know how to maintain. And now Livingston was offering to establish a new trade route to the coast. Well, that meant that Sekalatu could use Livingston and his new trade route to destroy the slave trade of the Induna, the rich Kololo warlords, who were refusing to recognise his authority. Well, of course, the older Indunas bitterly opposed Livingston's plans. In fact, they laughed in his face. But equally obviously, Sekaleitu and his young Mopato, the unmarried men, enthusiastically took him up. They loved the guns and the clothes and the biscuits and the other goods he brought with him. But he was mostly useful to them for acquiring new status. After all, Livingston could be relied on to preach loudly against the slave trade, which was the very source of much of the Induna's wealth. So the Yonkalula men enthusiastically heard Livingston's sermons, even though somehow none of them converted to Christianity. Then Livingston returned from Luanda with a special gift for the young chief Sekaletu, a smart Portuguese military uniform with a matching cap and sash. It was a clear sign of superior status, and from then onwards, the king always wore it in public. Ah, the plan is working well for Sekaletu. And the 27 young men who'd accompanied Livingston on his expedition also came back with European suits that they'd been given in Luanda, complete with white and red caps. In fact, Livingston describes them strutting around for the girls to see, as they'd seen the Portuguese do. So you see, since Livingston had turned up, the fortunes of Sekaletu and his young Mapato had definitely taken a turn for the better. Of course, they hadn't yet found a river for trade, but the young Kalolo men didn't really care about that. They returned from Luanda with tales of the high prices that ivory fetched there. So Sekaletu promptly made ivory a royal monopoly and seized it all for himself. He then dispatched a new party to carry a heavy load of ivory all the way to Luanda and sell it at an enormous profit. Well, that still left the warlords with their monopoly of cows. But with his monopoly of ivory, the king would now be able to outbuy them. He used it ruthlessly to buy supporters and influence in his kingdom. His Mapato would now be able to exchange the goods they acquired for cattle and brides, and also European clothes that they prized so much, not because they were European, but because they had become a kind of status symbol. The young men would now begin patrolling Kololo territory with new imported guns, freeing the slaves that the Indunas were trying to sell. Sekaletu soon felt confident enough, to Livingston's great delight, to pass a decree banning the slave trade altogether. But it wasn't because the missionary had convinced Sekaletu that enslavement was immoral. This was all about Kololo politics. Livingston had in fact been able to displace the slave trade with one that was just as profitable, ivory, but it wasn't at all in the way he'd intended. To Livingston's horror, Sekaletu invited his rebellious cousin Mpepe to a meeting with the missionary. Tempted by the possibility of gaining some advantage for himself, Mpepe came. 
and was promptly beheaded by Sekeletu's Mapatu. Sekeletu now launched a reign of terror against the other Induna, the wealthy Kalola warlords. When Livingston then set off eastward, Sekeletu and his Mapato, full of confidence, sent along, as historian Kaluzu points out, a shopping list, quotes, of more than a hundred goods, among which were a sugar mill, the latest double-barrelled rifles for killing elephants, beads, hats, coats, jackets, black and brown shoes, an iron rocking chair, ladies' clothes and spectacles. Within a couple of years, Sekulator would be sending his own men to trade ivory for status-giving luxuries like tea and sugar, American biscuits, strawberries and peaches, quotes, preserved in their own juices. So Livingston's plan to replace the slave trade with other kinds of commerce was working. But it was only working to the advantage of Sekuletu and his select young warriors. And the Kaloa were paying a steep price. What had been a relatively stable society had broken down into warring factions. As historian Willima Kalusa argues, Sekeletu and the Kololo used Livingston for their own ends. The king was now able to build a new power base among the young men in his kingdom. For all the hospitality he offered the missionary, even offering to help find a site to build a mission, he resolutely refused to consider converting to Christianity himself, or to give up his many wives or to curb his drinking. Marriages were, after all, important to the king for winning the loyalty of important families, and the drinking parties were places where disputes got settled and loyalty was expressed. In fact, how much Livingston, sympathetic as he was to the Africans, really understood of what was going on is well, it's difficult to tell. The historian Kaluza believes that Livingston only dimly grasped the power struggle that was being fought out all around him. Livingston had, it turns out, been very lucky to fall in with a young African leader who could see a use for what he could offer. But Livingston's astounding feats of exploration were then being funded for dirty political and economic reasons that were probably very different from what Livingston imagined. There's no getting away from the fact that Livingston's journeys between 1849 and 1856 into the interior of Africa and then to Luanda on the west coast and finally to Kelamani on the east were an astonishing personal achievement of bravery and just plain dogged staying power. But for all his remarkable endurance and the maps he helped create, Livingston was much less different from the other missionaries than he has been imagined. Just like them, he was being used by the African peoples for their very own African reasons. He was also being carried along by forces of violent change, pushing up from the south with the Boers and infiltrating from either coast with the Arab and Portuguese traders. Like every other story about great heroes in the past, Livingston turns out to be an extraordinary individual, but one who only attempted and achieved what he did because of deep and powerful underlying historical processes that were probably beyond his awareness and certainly out of his control. Going east after the Victoria Falls, Livingston followed much of the course of the enormous Zambezi River. He reckoned, with a growing sense of triumph, that it would be the ideal trade route to the interior. Well, it's true, he didn't follow the river all the way, along its entire route. But he calculated that its elevation didn't fall sufficiently for there to be any more dangerous waterfalls in the part he hadn't seen for himself. Better still, he reckoned that there were seams of coal and gold along the river's course. He believed that his dream of commerce to the African interior was now 
within his grasp. But this discovery wasn't what now very quickly transformed Livingstone from a little-known and idealistic geographer-preacher to a household name and eventually a legend. That was down to a now long-forgotten figure in smart London society. His name was Sir Roderick Murchison. Sir who? Sir Roderick Murchison. Just six weeks after he reached Kelimani on the east coast of Africa, after another extraordinary journey from the Kalola villages far inland, Livingstone finally set off for Britain aboard HMS Frolic. Several of the Africans who travelled so far with him wanted to come too, but Livingstone took only one, Sekwebu, who'd become a close friend. Sadly, very sadly, before they reached Mauritius, the sea journey had proved too much for the African and he jumped overboard. Well, Livingstone was distraught. It was, in fact, a second setback for Livingstone in quick succession. To read most historians, you'd imagine that he was by now a national, if not an international, celebrity. But waiting for him at Kelemani had been a letter from his employers, the London Missionary Society. It effectively gave him notice, gave him the sack. After all, as the society pointed out, what Livingstone was now up to was, quotes, connected only remotely with the spread of the gospel. Even the missions he was vaguely proposing to set up in the interior would be far too expensive for the society, which was already badly in debt. Livingstone's journey home was slow, delayed by a stop in Cairo and a shipwreck of Malta, and there was no hero's welcome when he finally arrived in Dover. Not a single newspaper noticed and there was nobody to meet him. Even his wife had been told he would be docking at Southampton. But now Livingstone's story took an extraordinary turn. Enter Sir Roderick Murchison. Now, Sir Roderick Murchison, as his biographer put it in 1875, soon after his death, was, quotes, made to sit on chairs. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Murchison was a Scot, an ex-soldier turned geologist, who'd inherited a fortune. And then he made it his business to sit on every committee in London that had anything at all to do with geography or geology. For most of the 1850s and 1860s, he was either actually president of the Royal Geographical Society or effectively president, pulling all the strings behind the scenes. To most intents and purposes, Sir Roderick Murchison was the Royal Geographical Society. In 1855, he was made Director General of the Government's Geological Survey, and he was also put in charge of a project to establish a grand centre of arts and sciences in Kensington. Well, that's a project that would eventually lead to the, the science... science and Natural History Museum that we love so much. Murchison had made his name as a geologist during two tours of Russia in the early 1840s. Murchison apparently never lost contact with anyone he ever met if he thought he would one day have a use for them, so he'd kept up his Russian contacts and had campaigned in England for a Russo-British alliance. The Tsar himself had backed Murchison's books. Well, this is important because for two and a half years, 1853 to 1856, Russia and Britain were at war in the Crimea. Florence Nightingale. It meant that during those years, Murchison couldn't go on tours in Russia and he was forced to divert his considerable energies into the Royal Geographical Society itself and towards another interest of his, which was the exploration of Africa. The truth was that he was finding it all rather dull. 
So you can imagine Sir Roderick's excitement when the extraordinary Reverend Dr Livingstone arrived, metaphorically, with his morning mail. Livingstone had begun writing letters to Murchison on Christmas Eve 1854. You can, in fact, find them online at livingstoneonline.org. He sent them from wherever he happened to be in Africa and whenever he could get someone to carry letters to the coast. His previous contact at the RGS had been Lieutenant Colonel Thomas Steele, who'd been one of his big game hunting friends in southern Africa. But while Livingstone had been at Loanda on the Angolan coast, he'd read in the newspapers that Steele had been posted to the Crimean War. So Livingstone began writing to Murchison. Well, who else? Murchison would have been delighted to hear from Livingstone at any time, since he collected explorers in the same way that he collected geological specimens. But you see, in 1854, with all the Crimean War blocking his Russian plans, well, he was especially pleased. More than that, Murchison had his own particular personal reason to take an interest in Dr Livingstone. Because Murchison had a theory, which he'd first put forward himself a couple of years before in 1852. He proposed that the centre of Africa was effectively a large bowl, dotted with lakes from which the great rivers flowed to the coast. And that, of course, was exactly what Livingstone was banking on for his great plan for Central African commerce. It was what his journeys east and west were intended to demonstrate. Livingstone was also no amateur traveller. He had the notable advantage of some scientific training and could make accurate geographical measurements. And that was another of Murchison's personal bugbears. By the time Livingstone returned to Britain in 1856, he slotted into Murchison's plans almost too perfectly to be true. And very quickly, there was a further reason for Murchison to throw his very considerable backing behind the doctor. Livingstone turned out to be a lion. Well, that was Murchison's name for lecturers who could bring in big audiences. And so, of course, raised plenty of money for the Royal Geographical Society and Murchison's many other ventures. As many historians have pointed out, after his arrival in Britain on the 9th of December 1856, Livingstone very quickly turned out to be an extraordinary lecturer and writer. Well, at least once he got over his initial over-seriousness and awkwardness on stage. He was strikingly tanned. Some accounts say he was almost black. He spoke English in an eccentric and sometimes indistinct way. His West Scots accent further obscured after years speaking virtually only African languages. But... Once Livingstone got going, he was full of extraordinary, entertaining stories. Murchison had wasted no time in getting Livingstone on public platforms. Just 11 days after his arrival, one newspaper was already reporting one of the doctor's speeches. On the maps, he'd said, the centre of Africa was a blank. But he had discovered, quotes, fertile countries inhabited by populous tribes and intersected by large rivers. The further he travelled into the interior of Africa, he continued, the more civilised and numerous he found the inhabitants, and they had better and more settled forms of government. Of course, Livingstone had been referring to his beloved Kololo. Whether his description was an accurate account of the power struggle going on between Sekeletu and his warlords is another question, but it thrilled London audiences You can imagine it thrilled Sir Roderick more than anyone. On the 15th of December, 1856, well, that's less than a week after his arrival, Murchison's RGS had at last presented Livingstone with a proper gold medal. They'd only ever given him a chronometer before. 
the doctor then addressed a solemn company of assembled geographers. He was soon raising a laugh, telling them that, quotes, in Central Africa, the women had the upper hand. Uh-huh. But if a woman beat her husband, both were taken to the marketplace and the wife was compelled to take the husband home on her back amidst the cheers of the people. But on these occasions, the women generally cried out, give it him again. Well, you can imagine the solemn geographers slapping their thighs in polite amusement. Livingston described being attacked by the lion the occasion when his left arm had been broken. He'd reset it himself. The pain's hard to imagine, but it was never much use after that. He also told audiences how he'd fought off snakes, hippo, buffalo, crocodile. He told how he outwitted some African chiefs, but also... Unexpectedly for his audiences, he tried to present serious arguments in favour of polygamy and the witch doctors. He explained how hideous and strange a white European appeared to the Africans. Well, all this was very different from other missionaries' tales. They'd often got to know African peoples, but they'd usually stayed for years at one mission station, and they were often inclined to be rather judgmental in their views. Dr Livingston had been in Africa longer than anyone and he'd travel more widely than anyone. He also told his tales with the directness of an adventurer. But then again, he was different from other adventurers. They'd come back with swashbuckling accounts of their conquests. After all, travel writing had long been the most popular reading in Britain. But Livingston had enough scientific knowledge to impress his audiences that he was a serious scientific explorer. He could discuss botany, zoology, medicine, languages, and what later came to be called anthropology and he enshrined it all in a disarming modesty. He said, A man may boast when he is putting off his armour, but I am only putting on mine. Missionary, adventurer, scientist, Murchison must have thought he'd struck gold. London Society Committee man Sir Roderick Murchison found that David Livingstone was what he called a lion, a crowd puller. In fact, the Reverend Doctor quickly proved himself to be Murchison's best speaker for raising the profile of the RGS and the funds it needed for more exploration. Livingstone was also, of course, a missionary at a time when the churches were beginning to worry about declining attendances. The 1851 census had shocked church people by revealing that fewer than half the population had gone to church on the Sunday of the census. Livingstone was just the kind of muscular Christian from a working-class background who might appeal to the young and to the poor. He told the RGS that, quote, as a Christian missionary, I only did my duty in attempting to open up parts of northern intertropical Africa to the sympathies of Christendom. Well, it was really only one part of the truth. But Livingstone's grand plan to displace the Portuguese and Arab slave traders and establish a commercial link with Central Africa in partnership with the Africans themselves and with new mission stations was just what many eminent Victorians, including the Anti-Slavery Society and the Royal Geographical Society, wanted to hear. For the RGS here at last was a gold-plated way to persuade the government to fund their long-for expedition across Africa. And of course... Murchison himself couldn't wait to have his own theory about the Central African Bowl, the source for the great rivers, proved on the ground. 
So Murchison tugged hard at his very considerable network of strings, and Livingstone found himself talking to everyone, including the Foreign Secretary and the Prime Minister. He was even able to achieve that most difficult of the mythical labours of Hercules. At a private audience, the stern Scott Livingstone succeeded in amusing Queen Victoria. Above all, Murchison fixed Livingstone up with a publishing contract with the RGS publisher John Murray. Now, accounts of missionary work were usually brought out by the missionary societies themselves, and they sold a respectable few copies. But the publisher John Murray was a much more serious player. The writing of what became Livingstone's book Missionary Travels and Researches in South Africa has been studied by several historians. Unlike many travellers, Livingstone was a poor sketch artist and brought back virtually nothing Murray could use. But publisher and author put enormous effort into commissioning new work and also borrowing sketches from other travellers, not all of them acknowledged. Much the best known was the image of Livingstone being mauled by the lion who ruined his arm. He objected to the first version of the sketch since it made the lion enormously too big. And he pointed out nobody would believe it. And this was important. Justin Livingstone is one academic historian who studied the text. Justin? I, I guess you have to assume that Justin Livingstone is related in some way to David Livingstone. But if he is, he's exceedingly coy about it, as if he imagines it might colour his work. Anyway, Justin Livingstone, good historian. He points out that travellers always face the difficulty of getting audiences to believe their tales. But David Livingstone seemed to speak and write with such frankness and understatement and of course always with the authority of an ordained clergyman and qualified medical doctor, that listeners and reviewers agreed he was telling the truth. Justin Livingstone has shown that under John Murray's editing, David Livingstone carefully tailored his manuscript to appeal to the widest readership. This meant he cut out long, potentially unpopular sections that were, guess, critical of the British authorities in Southern Africa. That wouldn't do. But he added in more references to being a missionary, and more of his astronomical observations. He was also careful not to say too much about his own Scottish background, since apparently English Victorians regarded the Scots as backwards and intolerant, and there was a much bigger market, Murray said, for books in England than in Scotland. There's also been a long debate among modern historians about the way Livingstone's writing and lecturing fit in with big shifts in 19th century attitudes. For example, many in the 18th and early 19th centuries had argued that black and white men were brothers, they should behave as equals. By the 1850s, however, attitudes were beginning to change. Under the influence of gun-toting white fortune-seekers, African society had been becoming more violent, less inclined to pay any attention to the Christian missionaries. Even humanitarian campaigners were now saying that Africans were backward and childish. What they needed was white colonisation to restore order, bring them up to the white man's level. Whatever his intentions, Livingston seemed to be speaking to these changing beliefs. He himself, as we've discussed, unlike many, even among the missionaries, undoubtedly regarded the Africans he met as his equal, and he would have been shocked at the idea of exploiting the African peoples that he'd come to know and admire. But by the time his book, Missionary Travels, was published in 1857, Livingstone's vision of peaceful farming and trading commerce and Christianity was already a golden age that had gone. 
The irony is that his gentle utopian plan would not only be used by Africans like Sekeletu for their own political ends, but much worse, turn out to be the perfect cover for Europeans who dreamed of seizing the Africans' land for what they could get out of it. His book was just what a new generation of imperially-minded Britons wanted to read. You'd have to say also that Missionary Travels was published against the background of news about a major rebellion against British brutality in India. It was an uprising so serious it's sometimes known as the First War of Indian Independence. Well, uplifting stories about a morally wholesome empire was another thing many British longed for when the book came out. So not only was he pushed along by Murchison's backing, but circumstances completely beyond Livingstone's control were conspiring together to turn him into a celebrity. By 1857, funds were quickly pouring in for Livingstone to return to Africa. There he would lead a major expedition to open a trade route along the Zambezi River. It looked as though his dream might become reality after all. But then, very quickly everything started to go very badly wrong, as we shall see next time at the History Café. There are 70 evergreen podcasts now at the History Café and reading lists for every one of them. You can find them on our website, historycafe.org, and you can also sign up for a weekly newsletter. We're also on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and many other platforms. Just look out for History Cafe Podcasts with John and Penelope. And beware of imitations. Follow our regular blog at History Cafe Pod and spread the word. <laughs> <laughs>